Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, a very different tennis podcast for you today because we are joined by a guest, Christopher Clary from the New York Times, who has just written a new book about the life and career of Roger Federer, and it is called The Master. It's a book that Chris was kind enough to send to Matt, Catherine and myself in advance, and um, we want to talk to him about it and find out everything that he uh, he went through in terms of the process of writing it and what he learned in that process. Uh, Matt is here with me. He's going to have a chat about the book after we've heard this interview with Chris Clary from the New York Times. Well, Chris, great to have you with us as always on the Tennis Podcast and now with another subject to discuss and, and a really... It feels like a really meaningful and important subject, particularly now because of everything that we've learned about Roger Federer recently and, and, and what he's been going through. But before we get into that, maybe you could just tell me why a book about Federer? You've been covering a lot of people over a lot of years. Why Federer? I just felt for a couple of reasons, David, I felt like um, I had had a, a privileged opportunity in the last 20 years to really spend a lot of time with him and quality time across a number of years and a number of places on a number of continents. And uh, I think I would have had a big regret. I'm, I'm more of a person who wants to live um, with disappointment instead of regret. And um, I really wanted to, I realized over time, capture this. because I felt like it was a special opportunity that he'd given me in you know, the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune. And also, I felt like this era in men's tennis really has been exceptional. And I wanted, through Roger's story, to explore the rivalries in this era. And not just Novak and Rafa and Andy Murray, but the ones who came earlier, like Leighton Hewitt and Murat Safin and Andy Roddick. And I also had a lot of access to those people. So I felt like it was just, I had so much material. And I really sensed after the loss to Djokovic in the 2019 Wimbledon final and the way that season ended that Roger's you know, main body of work was was done now. And it seemed like really the right time, knowing that I'm sure he'll do an autobiography at some point. And um, there have been a lot of biographies written, but I don't think anybody's had the access to all the people like I have over such a long period of time. And also all his rivals, including Sampras as well, 
So it just seemed like the right moment to do it. And, you know, frankly, for a sad reason with the pandemic, I ended up with a, a good chunk of time at home and that made it easier too. But it's a book I really think I would have regretted not writing. Hmm. Yeah, that's something that struck me reading it is that it was put together, although you've written it now, it was basically put together in several stages over a very long period of time. Because I mean, how many how many opportunities did you do you reckon you've had to interview him over the course of his career? Oh, it's been it's been over 20 exclusives for sure. And um, and then obviously so many times in small groups or news conferences. But yeah, it's, it's in the low 20s, I would say. Um, over the years, beginning in 2001 and and going through the end of uh, you know the 20, 2019, 2020 were the last ones till now. Mm-hmm. So it's just a lot of material. I'm telling. You, I, I printed out all the uh, transcripts from my interviews and from the hundreds and hundreds of pages. So it was just going through all that was a monumental task. And I suppose one of the tasks is trying to decide how to use all of that material, because there's probably a number of different ways you could write a book like this, who a guy who's had more than half of his 40 years as a tennis pro and won 20 grand slam singles titles, all the records. How did you come to the decision and the conclusion to write it as you did in the, in this sort of, you, it felt like it, you've taken it chronologically, but you've taken it in meaningful moments and, and, and meaningful people in, in his life. And, and I guess your, your reaction to them and your discoveries and your senses as well. That's a great question, David. That's a wonderful question. That really was the biggest challenge to me uh, of writing the book was organizing all that material. And I did over 80 interviews as well, just for the book um, on top of my reporting over the years, because I wanted to go back and talk to people again and people I might've missed and try to really get their perspective now that Roger was getting near the end of his career. But I think the big problem was how to marshal all that information. And also, how, as, you, as you say, how to structure it. Also, because he, you know, he still is playing. As it turns out, I think the odds are against him playing a, whole, a lot more tennis now going forward because of the way things have worked out. But um, it, was, it had to be still relevant, but also, I think, capture the whole arc of his career. And I think I thought hard about maybe trying to focus in on – I even thought about trying to do his shots for a while. Let's take a shot and take that as a representation and, and structure the book around his game and then expand from there. But I think I just realized I had interviewed him in so many places and so many places are, are important to him because of the way he's lived his life. And he's, he's lived this global life, uh, extremely global for the last 25 years or so. And I felt like the way to structure it was to capture that. And obviously there's there are a lot of chapters and I think they cover most of the continents and most of the major places in tennis, but I think they were in some cases very in-depth on the place, like the chapter on Écublon in, in Switzerland, where he had his uh, expatriate moment, I would say, when he had to go learn how to speak French at age 14 and join the National Center there. That's very much in Écublon. Um, there are other chapters that you sort of use it as more of a leaping off point, the place, uh, be it a, a meeting we had or something that happened to him in that spot. But I really wanted to capture his global nature because that's such a huge part of him and it means a lot to him. And it was tricky because if you had your chapter on Wimbledon early, which I did because that's when he, when he won it, um, obviously he played Wimbledon <laughs> so many times through the years and had many moments there. So the real challenge was trying to take those places, but not, I didn't want to bring them back again. I wanted to have them be in there once. So I was trying to weave all the things that happened in those places multiple times over the years together. That was the real challenge of the book. When you go back to 
the first of those encounters, the first sense that you got of him, when was that and 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 what was it about him? What was he like, I suppose? What what did you what was your sense of him as a player and a person? Well, the first time I saw him play in person was actually the French Open uh, Grand Slam debut he had against Patrick Rafter, 1999, in the uh, first round there. It was his first ever Grand Slam match. And I talked to a couple of agents, and they were saying, you got to go see this guy. And uh, I don't represent him, so you can trust me, <laughs> basically, was their, was their theme, which was good to hear. And that, that was encouraging and got me out there because I usually hear a lot from agents, my guy's going to be great. But this was like this other guy – player is going to be great. So I went out and watched that. And of course, you know, was going to stay for a few games and I stayed for most of the match and he showed a lot of flash and that was interesting and definitely caught my eye. And I wanted to see what would happen next. But the first real in-depth look I got at him was 2001, February um, in Basel, where he was playing Davis cup against us, the U S Patrick McEnroe as the captain in his first tie. Todd Martin was playing Jan Michael Gamble Justin Gimmelstab was playing doubles. Um, so it was the first time I really got a long look at Roger and got to interview him. And we did some you know, short breakout session and then some uh, news conferences. I just was my first chance to really observe him up close for four or five days. And I was blown away by his game then, David. I was just blown away by it. I just watched him play. He took care of us, the U.S., and uh, won all three rubbers of the match and dominated and was just brilliant. But I could just transpose his game. And I write about this in the book. I could transpose his game from watching him to me to grass. Like I was just watching him float around the court and, and hit shots with variety from all different corners of the court and all different sections. And I could just imagine grass beneath his feet. And I literally burst out in the, in the uh, press seats and said, this guy's going to win multiple Wimbledons. I don't know who I was even talking to. Um, so that was, I rarely had those moments. I'm much more of a, analyst after the fact that I am a predictor of things, but I just, it just seemed clear to me. And I think it's from having watched so much tennis like you, you, when you do that, you get a sense of where people fit into that sort of time space continuum. And I was watching him and I could really feel and see what he was capable of. So that was ever since then. And I've, you know, really been fascinated by his career and taking every opportunity that I can to, uh, to speak with him. And it was interesting to watch him there. I know you worked with, with Roger in your ATP days early on. We talked about that for the book is actually. And um, I was interested to watch him already. That was 20 years ago in his multilingual mode where he was doing his news conferences in his baritone, nasal baritone voice in English and French and Swiss German. And the, he already had that kind of rapport. He wasn't a global star by any means, but he was already a figure in Switzerland by then. Mm. Well, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is is the detail the granular detail from significant people in his life particularly in that uh, in those early days you i felt you you captured what was happening in his failure to just immediately arrive you know that the, the, there was the there were the there was the promise but it, this wasn't an adele was it this wasn't a becker just coming and winning everything this this took a while yeah i mean you and i both saw that up close from different angles uh in your atp job me as a journalist it was really interesting to go back and see how much of a how much in question it all really was he had the ability i mean everybody you talked to through the years was always blown away by his potential and his shot making ability and his and his fluidity 
but there were so many things that could have stopped him short of fulfilling that. Um, many more than I realized before I started working on the book, actually. And it wasn't just the play. It was also the finances and it was the, um, you know, the personal relationships. He made a lot of good choices and he got lucky a lot too, I think. Um, and it really, in all, what way? well, I think I, he got lucky in the sense that, you know, some of the things that, um, I mean, there's, I talk, there's a whole chapter in the book about luck where he's skiing with Mark Rosset, uh, I think in 2000, and he has this horrible crash while they're skiing in Crown, Montana. And Rosset is just petrified, skis down, think he's going to find him like in a heap with his body all out of whack. And he's sort of Roger Groggily kind of gets up and says, hey, I'm okay. You know, kind of. So that just tells you right there, there's all these things that can go wrong for kind of a reckless youth. And then also just the people that he met, I mean, along the way, what are the odds of Peter Carter, uh, Australian charismatic guy who was kind of a, on the, on the cusp pro of making the main tour and being on the satellite tour, choosing to come to Basel. And Roger was a great soccer player. So he, if, if he hadn't had the right tennis influence at that point in his life, somebody he admired, somebody he respected, somebody who could channel his ability, he may well have not ever been, you know, a, a pro tennis player. He might've gone a different direction. And I think, Obviously, um, Pierre Paganini as well. You know, Pierre was not destined to be a tennis fitness trainer. He was probably much more likely to be a soccer fitness trainer. Um, Pierre Paganini has been one of the most important people in his career as a guru, if you will, and a fitness trainer and a sounding board. And he also could easily have not been an AQ Blanc when Roger showed up there, and he might easily have gone a different direction too. And then Mirka. I mean, frankly, if Mirka doesn't get – a bunch of Swiss players don't withdraw from the women's team at the Olympics in 2000 in Sydney – um, and Mirka only got in because of that, then I'm not sure Roger and Mirka ever happened. And no Mirka, the whole thing changes. So Peter Carter, Mirka, and Pierre Paganini, I think, are acknowledged by people who are all close to Roger, and probably by Roger himself, I think, is the three most significant people in his career. And I feel like they all had an element of luck to it. Mm. Yeah, and... I mean, just to go through them, I mean, Pierre Paganini on a physical level, I guess that is obvious in some way that you need to find the right person that can build an athlete. And he, he obviously managed to achieve that. On Peter Carter's standpoint, again, you, you, you found the detail that I must admit I missed. I knew Peter Carter back then. I, I knew he'd had an accident that had taken his life while he was on safari. I didn't know the detail of it. You, that is in in the book and also the detail about the effect that that had on Federer we knew on court that he had he had cried and that he had paid tribute to him and dedicated a victory to to Peter Carter but what really struck me is that that it seemed to almost draw a line the the book is telling us that that was a in part, a jumping off point for his whole career is a tragic moment like that. Is, is, is that how you saw it? Yes, very much so. There is de- there are definitely a before and after for Roger there. The circumstances were interesting and probably contributed to it because, as I'd forgotten, he wasn't working with Peter Carter at the time. He was peripherally because he was uh, – he had – and the other Swiss players had managed to get Peter Carter in as the Swiss Davis Cup captain, even though he wasn't a Swiss citizen yet. And so he was bringing Peter Carter back into his orbit more and more. And Eva Allegro was one of Roger's closest friends and longtime partner in doubles, Davis Cup 
he believes he's he firmly believes that Roger would have brought Peter Carter back on as his coach on tour at some point if Peter Carter had lived. That didn't happen. Roger knew all that he owed to Peter. He knew uh, what a connection it had been. And I also, he knew that where he died, he died in South Africa. Um, and I think there was some guilt there because that was Roger had always said, you got to go down there and see, this is a great place because Roger's mother was from there. I think Lynette Federer even played a role in helping the Peter Carter organized that honeymoon trip to South Africa where he died. Of course, it's not the Federer's fault, but there is a link there, which I think contributed to the feelings being so powerful. And I think Roger was also at that age, you know, when we're in our 40s or 50s, losing somebody you care about, it's always tragic. But when you're 21, as emotional a person as Roger is, as empathetic as he is, which I talk about a lot in the book, um, yeah, just sort of how close his emotions are to the surface and how deeply he kind of feels for things and for people, that's a huge transformational moment to lose somebody who's pivotal for you like that, kind of a second father figure. It hits you in such a profound way. And I think his conclusion, which is a great boon to tennis and a great boon to ultimately to him, is that he he decided, I think, really very concretely that he wanted to honor Peter's Peter Carter's legacy and Peter Carter's belief in him. And there's paper trails of this. Peter Smith, who was the Australian who coached Leighton Hewitt and Peter Carter and a lot of other great Aussie players over the years, you know, shared an email with me that Roger had sent to him shortly after Carter's death saying, I'm going to let you know that whenever I play on court, I think of Peter and I'm going to do all I can to honor his memory. And that kind of thing can fade, but I honestly don't know, having watched some of Roger's reactions in recent years to talking about Peter Carter still, I'm not sure it ever did entirely fade. And I think it has been the thread running through his career. Um, in many ways, that line of motivation, that line of getting the most out of himself. And I think it's uh, it's sad to say, but I don't think Roger, I'm not convinced Roger would have been the player that he, he became if, if, if Peter Carter hadn't died. Mm. And actually, uh, it's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is because it it reads like your work in the New York Times in as much as it's it's profiling a lot of people. It's not just profiling Roger Federer. It feels like it's profiling Peter Carter and Pierre Paganini and and Mirka Vavrinich, uh, who was a tennis player before she ended up meeting Roger. And, and I mean, she was managing him to, to some degree for a while. And she was obviously his girlfriend and subsequently his wife. Um is that something that you started out planning to do to 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 end up profiling them and and there was there were sections on Marit Safin and Leighton Hewitt and te- it feels like we I, I learned a lot about a lot of different people in this book that I'm I probably wasn't really expecting to. Well, I am delighted to hear that coming from you, who knows a lot about tennis. Um, my goal with the book was to reach tennis nerds like you and me, and people who follow the game really closely. I'm hoping they would get something out of it including myself, because I didn't want to spend a year of my life and not learn a lot, but also to try to try to paint the human stories about Roger and people close to him so that it would appeal to a wider audience as well. People who might not follow the sport closely, but knew who Federer was, were interested. And I really wanted to get inside his process and the people that mattered to his process. So those are really the two things I kept. I think I had a paper on my desk with those two things written on it as I was working through this and pulling what's left of my hair out. And, uh, <laughs> You know, basically, it was a real challenge. But I, I was, to me, I was very interested to learn about those people. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the book, too. I wanted to go back. And these people also, you know, we didn't talk about Peter Lundgren, 
but Peter Lundgren was another guy. I know you knew him at the time. I was fascinated by him. I wanted to understand more about him and how, how they came together and how that happened. He was the coach, you know, he was chosen over Peter Carter by Roger. And, and um, so that it was definitely was a goal of mine to get into that. And I felt like I learned a lot. So those parts of the book for me were very fresh when I was writing them. Probably fresher than writing about the 2008 Wimbledon final was because I obviously talked about that a lot over the years. But that to me was some of the most interesting part to research was to go back and talk to the I didn't know the Maleva sisters had worked with Pierre Paganini. Did you? I'd forgotten that. No, I didn't. So to hear what, you know, Magdalena and Manuela Maleva remember of Pierre Paganini and what role he had on their careers. I had never really interviewed Mark Rosé about Roger. So all those sorts of things kind of put me on the bones, if you will. And, and I felt like to understand him, you think you needed to understand as much as you could about the people who were close to him and influential on him. And obviously I didn't get to everybody. America hasn't given an interview in, over a decade, really. And I would love to have spoken with her, but that wasn't to be. But I think um, I tried to paint her portrait from my early contacts with her. And and a lot of times Roger and I talked about her and and others as well. So that there was, that was one thing I think was missing. But I think otherwise, I got a good peek at the people that mattered most to him. Mm. How difficult in this process is, is getting to all these people? Did you say you, you did about 80 interviews? this book i think the number david so i actually counted because i was trying to figure out how to say thank you to everybody but i think it was um 82 was the final number including yourself i might add but yes 82 <laughs> well, so you yeah. made the list but it was definitely yeah and, and and so you can't thank 82 people in your acknowledgments otherwise your book becomes beyond boring but it was definitely uh the key things for me were getting to talk to people in the early years who I wasn't around in AQ Blanc when he was 14 to talk to people like Christoph Freis, who was running the program there. That was really interesting hearing what he had to say. And then really a part of the book, I think, which breaks a lot of new ground is, is the part about uh, his finances and his business empire. Maybe we'll talk about that a bit later, but that, that to me was one of the areas that was really important to do justice to him as a figure. So talking to a lot of his early agents like Régis Brunet, his from IMG Frenchman, who was his first agent and I'm, I think the first person ever in recent years to talk to Bill Ryan, who was his, uh, his second agent and Lundgren's agent and was kind of uh, there at a critical point in Roger's early career. So to get those kind of opinions was really, uh, was really big for me. Is, it, is that something you started out looking into or did that branch off as you were going along and thought, oh, I've not, I've not heard about this before. I'll go and talk to those two. And, and, and what did you find what were the main takeaways for you once you'd spoken to them? Well, I, that's, that's a pretty tough to sum up because there's so many interviews, but I can say that I didn't intend to write to interview 80, 82 people when I started mm-hmm. out. That wasn't the goal. I didn't know if I'd have that kind of time to begin with. I kind of thought I'd had, I had so much material from all these other interviews over the years. And it was just like I had, I had enough to write the book right then if I had chosen to, to be honest. But I really felt like to make the book fresh, and there've been some, you know, quality biographies of Roger already, obviously, you know, Renee Stouffer's and Chris Bowers has written about him, others too. But I felt like what I could bring was a lot of really fresh in the now reporting with that look back, reach a lot of people with my contacts. And I really wanted to dig into the rivalries. So that was to me very, very important. And I wanted to do it in a, not a point by point or match by match way, but to sort of try to get to the quintessence of those rivalries. And one of the great joys of the of the book 
to research it was to go back and watch a lot of these old matches. And I just, I really enjoyed that. But I think in terms of what I learned, I think it's too much to sum up. I mean, you, I hope people read the book and that, that'll tell you what I learned in a lot of ways. But I, I think it was really interesting to see, as we talked about earlier, we alluded to just sort of those pivot points where he could have gone a different direction. Like Christophe Freis in Écublanc when he was 14, talking about this guy who couldn't even really focus on you when you're trying to coach him. He wouldn't even look you in the eye really for very long because he had so much nervous energy, almost like an ADHD thing where he just couldn't sit still. He couldn't even stand still and look at you for long. He just needed to have the ball in his hand or the racket in his hand and hit something. He needed to be doing something. So just to hear, see the, hear those kind of stories really brought him to life for me in his early years. And then to realize in the business side of things, I learned a lot from that. Uh, I've obviously interviewed Tony Godsick a lot, his agent over the years, but to go back to those early people and here, Bill Ryan, Roger had already beaten Sampras at Wimbledon in the fourth round in 2001, trying to renegotiate his Nike contract. And he was not getting anything close to what he wanted. So he went out to try to talk to some other people. Bill talks about this, uh, other, other companies. He talked to everybody, Fila, Diodora, Lacoste, everybody. Nobody wanted him at, at the price bill was, or even close to the price bill was trying to get him for, which was like a million a year in the first year of the contract. But you think about the billion that Rogers won in his career, earned in his career. It's just crazy to think back on that. And really, as a Swiss guy at the time, with all his talent, you had Leighton Hewitt, you had Juan Carlos Ferrero, you had Murat Safin, you had, you had Andy Roddick. All these guys, they could have been the guy as far as the sponsors and agents were concerned. It wasn't clear at all that Roger was the guy. He was one of the guys, but he was not the guy. So he had just to see how much he had to kind of fight and struggle to get to his place in the sun in those early years, despite people inside the game who followed it, knowing he had this talent. That was fascinating to me. And also just to break down things like who knew that Peter Carter also kept his eyes on the ball after he made contact. David McPherson, you know, the great coach told me that because he knew Peter Carter when he was young. So why does Roger keep his eyes on the ball like a golfer a little bit longer after each shot, which is really his trademark? Well, Peter Carter did it. Mm. So there's all these kinds of details in the book um, that I learned along the way that just added dimension. And let's face it, there are worse jobs in the world than having to watch a lot of Roger Federer matches. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, that, it's that detail because obviously having lived through it in, in my various roles, there's a certain amount that I already knew, but it's the detail really sometimes took me by surprise. Um, I mean, I also, I enjoy your your takeaways on various elements of his career and his rivalries. And, and you, you mentioned getting into those was one of the things that you wanted to do. And there, there are a lot of them. It's it, We tend to think of, of Djokovic and Nadal, first of all, but obviously there were many others. There were, there's the ro- whole Roddick and Hewitt ones, which I remember really well from from that part in his career. But I mean, the the ones the one that really the conclusion that I was m- maybe most surprised by was was your interest in the Djokovic uh, rivalry and Djokovic himself. In that you, I think you said he was the most fascinating of the big three to you. What? Why was that? Well, I think to me it's not even close. To be honest with you, I mean, just on a human journalistic level. I'm not sure as a tennis fan, I would say that, or a tennis spectator, I would say that. But I, would, I just think on the whole arc of his career, his life, the twists and turns of his story, 
I mean, Roger has plenty of those. Rafa, I think, has fewer, I would say. It's more of a straight line sort of thing um, with his back. He obviously had his physical issues and his anxieties, but straighter line. But Novak, I mean, it's it's cinematic. His life is truly cinematic, and I'm sure there will be cinematic work done on Novak Djokovic at some time or another, just because of the situation he was in early in his career, in his life with his family in Serbia, the kind of grit that he had probably naturally through his family and all they'd been through and just the kind of edge they as a group and he brought to, to the microcosm of the tour and these two established figures, especially Roger, who was the most established when he arrived. And just seeing Novak always searching for something in, in himself, um, in his entourage, in his game, in his health, everything. It's just, he's a, he's a searcher. And I feel like uh, a seeker, if you will. And I, and I feel like that just gives him a, a narrative arc that nobody else in this era possesses. I mean, they're all, they're all good stories. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I haven't gotten tired of writing about any of them over the years. Uh, I think it's, it's definitely helped to have all them in the mix because it gives you all these different plot lines and personalities to focus on at different times. But the way they've all played off each other, we've all seen a lot of the matches. That's sort of the, the tip of the iceberg, if you will. But below the water, there is so much that's happened. And I really wanted, for my own memory's sake, and hopefully for the people's enjoyment of the sections in the book, we get into those big matches. I wanted people who maybe didn't follow the sport as closely to have a full, as full a picture as, as possible of, of Rafa and Novak before we really dug into those matches in the narrative. I thought that was important because I know for me, when I know a lot about something um, or somebody, I'm sorry, uh, when I watch them compete or whatever they do, my interest is peaked. And so I felt that was important. Mm. It, it was fascinating really to, to relive in, in my mind and also to learn new things about what those rivalries meant for him and did for, did to him and caused him to do because the, there's a tendency to think, well, once he cracked it, he just had it all to himself for a while, and then, and then you make it quite clear. Actually, Nadal was in the slipstream pretty early on, wasn't he? Yes, he was. That's the thing. I mean, people have this impression that, like um, Roger with Pete Sampras, who's one of his idols. You know, Roger basically, you know, toppled his idol at Wimbledon in 2001. I think everybody kind of feels because there's that pretty decent size age gap with Rafa and Roger, almost five years that it was similar with them, but really that wasn't the case. I mean, Rafa, Rafa knew about Roger for sure and, and took note of his triumphs, but he was not the guy when Rafa was emerging. And only when Rafa first kind of came on tour in Miami, Roger was having that dominant season. He'd won Wimbledon the year before. So this was 2004 when they first played in Miami and, um, Rafa arrives. I don't think Rafa had any problem with toppling his idols anyway, because he obviously beat Carlos Moya, who was from Mallorca and number one and his big reference point. And there's that great story from Pat Cash, which I'm sure you've heard, but I'm not sure your readers remember where Pat Cash comes to play Becker in Mallorca for an exhibition and, and Becker gets hurt. They look for a substitute. They find this local teenager to play. Pat kind of comes out to be nice and like the first point, this guy hits a lefty forehand ripped and vamos and jumps through the roof or jumps to the sky. And, and Pat goes, hmm. And that was Rafa. 
And Rafa ends up just, you know, beating Pat and vamosing all day long. And Pat calls all the people he knew afterwards, say, this kid's going to be a champ. So I don't think Rafa had a big problem with stage fright at any point. But when he played Roger in Miami in that match, Roger had just emerged as the dominant player in men's tennis, but he hadn't been there for five, five or six years by any means. So I don't think Rafa had any complexes. And that match is, was a treat to go back and watch because John Barrett was commenting on, and I talk about this in the book, and they're kind of warming up to do the uh, analysis with his partner, Doug Adler, on on air. And they're talking about, about uh, Roger coming into Miami and should he worry about this kid too much? And one of them sort of says, well, I don't really think so. And then the, this next point starts as they're talking and they stop. And what you see unfold just by pure happenstance is this classic Rafa Roger point where Roger hits corners that would be winners against anybody else. And Rafa just reboots the point again and again, ends up winning with a passing shot rip and just vamos. And, and then they never really got back to that question they asked <laughs> after that again. <laughs> As if to say, and then by the end of the match, it's like, this young man is special. He's very special, John Barrett's saying. So it was almost like from the beginning, it was destined to be something remarkable the way they face off against each other. But Rafa, you know, he, he emerged early. And Roger's period of absolute dominance, which we kind of tend to think of as most of the 2000s in memory, was not at all like that. He really only had a couple seasons where he was kind of free and clear. And after that, Rafa was in, in his kitchen on clay for sure. And as you can tell from the Miami match, you know, the, the, the victory in their first match for Rafa and then that very tight final the following year, Roger won in five sets. I mean, Rafa was also in his kitchen on hard courts and then soon grass. So Roger's period to be sailing above it all, imperiously looking down with that magnanimous smile did not last very long, really, in the whole chronology. Mm. And being chased down by him and then by Djokovic, we end up where we are with them all on 20 Grand Slam singles titles, which just saying sounds like somebody's made it up. It doesn't sound real. Um, how do you think he he looks at that now? I mean, obviously, it maybe brings it even more into focus because it looks like this might well be the end of his of his ability to win anymore, of, of any, or, or frankly, to even be able to play competitively anymore. What, how do you reckon he actually really thinks about it? Well, that's, that's a really good question. And I've asked him over the years in different interviews the question in different ways. And I remember talking to him about it early uh, in his career. It might have been 2005 or 2006. Just sort of saying, talking about records and and all that, and and um, what the records meant, and he was chasing some of Sampras's obviously at the time, and different things he was trying to do. And he goes, you know, really, and it didn't seem like he was just making this up or or, or rationalizing. And at that point, he didn't have a lot of scar tissue, did he? So you're almost more inclined to believe what he was saying at that point entirely. But he said something to the effect of. You know, really, the record and the moment are what matter to me. It's because you break the record in that moment or you make that achievement and it happens in real time and those emotions are so powerful. And that's really what you're playing for, in my opinion, is that that feeling, that sense of achievement in real time. And, um, yeah, I mean, down the road, it's nice to see your name still there, but the emotions of hanging on to it are nothing compared to the emotions of achieving it. And I thought that was really insightful. And he said something similar about that later on as well. And, I, I, and I'm sure Rafa and Novak have been huge motivational factors for him. 
because they pushed him. And he knows only the, only the players themselves really know, David, what kind of duress they're under out on the court. And that's, you can see the respect in their eyes. And there's a story in the book. I don't want to talk about everything, obviously, because I hope people read it, but it's, you know, it's a, there's a great section in there about Agassi in Houston. And Darren Cahill told me the story. You may have heard it, but it was just him talking about Andre after losing to Roger in, in, the, in Houston, in the locker room, just head down. And Andre was usually pretty quick to rebound according to Cahill. And Andre just kept his head down and basically Darren came up to him, patted him on the back and said, you'll get him next time made and something to that effect. And Andre looks up with these sort of red eyes and says, no, man, he's changed the game. Now he's changed the game. So he's, I thought that was an amazing story. Mm. And he, he put it in, he's kind of put the game into a place where you know, I can't follow. So I think only Roger, Rafa, Novak know deep down sort of when they're on the court against each other, where those places are, they just can't feel comfortable. I think they all have managed to put each other under that kind of duress over time in different places and different ways. So I think Roger, knowing that, has been preparing himself for these records to be threatened, equaled, or tumble for quite a long time. I mean, he knows how good Novak is, and he's known how good Rafa is for even longer. So I don't think this comes as any great surprise to him. And I think you could tell by him lasting a long time, it soon became clear that he was motivating them to last a long time and resetting the bar in the game. So it's all fit up itself. I don't think the record chase would have been enough to keep him around till age 40. I think it's taken the day-to-day joy of the game, his, his pleasure in process, and his ability to uh, kind of reinvent practices, travel, all things that he does with creativity, and above all, his connection on an elemental level with the public. All those things have been, I think, just as big a factor, if not bigger factors than the record and holding on to it. Well, I can guarantee anybody listening to this that regardless of all the stories you've heard in this podcast, it is well worth you still reading this book because there is so much more beside. I mean, I I was captivated. I really was. I couldn't. And my, my daughter's read it. She's only uh, 11 years old, but she's absolutely loving it. Um, and it's very interesting as well, just getting her view from somebody who's, you know, she's seen him on the TV in the last couple of years and that's it. Um, and to, to understand that there's so much more that, that has gone into the the person that you see there. I mean, just just a couple of final points. One is, given you've done twenty odd interviews with him over a twenty year period plus, how, how has he how has he changed as a person? I thought a lot about that and kind of the evolution because obviously he's evolved in so many ways. I mean, business, his uh, his sort of public image. And privately, you know, it's interesting. He definitely seemed, uh, in the early years, I'd say a little bit more guarded, a little bit rougher around the edges. Um, but he always had that ability from an early stage, in my view, to kind of block out all the noise, block out all the other distractions, and really focus on the conversation and the interview at hand. And they felt more like conversations from that, even from the early ages. I remember 2005 in Paris interviewing him in the hotel with that amazing view of the Place de la Concorde. It was utter luxury. And he just sat down and Merca was going to do some kind of photo shoot parry match, I think, later in the day or later in the week. And so she kept coming in and out of the room with different clothes on. <laughs> and he would give her his attention and say yay or nay, and then go back to our interview and give it its full focus. So 
he was able to manage and compartmentalize things very well then. But he very you know human and warm on a one-on-one level. Had a lot of curiosity about where you were coming from as the person interviewing him. He wanted to get a sense of what made you who you were, what had brought you to that place. That was always there. I think he's gotten so much more confident and relaxed about, you know, what he brings to the equation over time. I mean, people can look look at some things he's done, like some of the jackets at Wimbledon and some of the comments after matches at times and see a, a whiff of arrogance or cockiness. I honestly have never felt any kind of entitled nature in any of the interviews I've done with him. And, to, you know, to be 100% clear about it, I'm also doing them for the New York Times or the International Herald Tribune. So I'm not, he's not just talking to me, he's talking to my paper and what it represents. So that, that, I can't forget that. But the fact of it is, you always had the impression that it was a real exchange and not just a transactional thing. And that honestly, there have been other people like that I've interviewed. I've covered many, many sports in my career as a sports writer. So there's certainly been other athletes like that, but somebody who's been in the public eye that long in that kind of position to still feel that human face to face and that unentitled, I would say, I think is very rare. Yeah, I think it, I think it is very rare. Um, a couple that Matt Roberts, uh, my co-host here on the tennis podcast has sent through what wants to know how the name of the book, the master was arrived at is that something that you came up with or is that the publisher's work and 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 why that you know i have a great publisher a guy named sean desmond at 12 his work doesn't work on i think it might be his uh, he hasn't done many tennis books or sports books i don't think this is he's more of a broad brush and he really felt strongly about that title and i think it works in the sense that roger really was about mastering so many domains in his career uh, that was the key. I don't think he's the goat. I don't think there is a goat. And I really don't like that term. And I don't think we need to have that determination to go forward with our lives, frankly. <laughs> Even despite all, all the column inches and, and Twitter space that's been used over the last decade about it. But I think what's important is, is that sort of search for, for mastery, really, um, on a personal level and a professional level. And I think that's been definitional for him. So I like the title. It wasn't my idea. It was Sean's idea. And um, I thought it, the more I thought about it, the more I felt like it worked. And also obviously with tennis's connections to, you know, the masters and the year end tournament, it's got some resonance there for the sport. So I, I, I liked it. What do you think, David? I, I like it too. And I also, I do like the cover as well. The uh, it's showing Roger Federer in, I guess, backhand slice completion mode and just shows the full, sort of balance and poise, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. You talk to people like Ella Ling, great photographer who took a bunch of shots for this for the book, um, or shared a bunch of her shots for the book. And that's it. It's just really hard to get Roger in an awkward position in a photograph because his body is has that balletic, natural balance and poise. So I thought that was a nice choice. And I, you could have easily picked a inside-out leaping forehand for the cover, but I thought that was a nice, almost insidery kind of a, kind of shot to choose Mm. and from a personal level for you the dedication just inside is for my dazzling mom who handed down her love of words and tennis um tell us about that well you're very nice to ask about that david um my mother is a remarkable person smartest person i know and she uh basically my father was a naval officer as i talk about in the book so he was gone a lot and um, in my early childhood, especially six months at a time on deployments. 
And for a while, that was just pretty much my mom and, and myself at the house. And, and we had a, we had and have still a very strong connection and she's a word person speaks in metaphors and similes and everything reminds her of a book or, a, or an image from a book or something else. She's very kind of a literary minded person and she loved tennis. So my, my early memories were getting up to watch the, the grand slam tournaments and, and watching Connors and Everett and, and Borg and Navratilova and those people in my living room on black and white TV at the start, I might add <laughs> with my mom. And then basically she was a, a fine recreational tennis player. And so we played a lot of tennis together too. So there's no way I would have followed the path that I followed without her. And, um, you know, she's getting on in years and I, I just felt like if I'm writing this book and putting a lot of myself into it, why am I doing this? It's because of her. That's lovely. And we are, all the richer for it is i think readers of the book i mean i i don't want to embarrass you but i mean i i love the book i love all of your work as as you know i, w- I would hope after all these years of, of us talking about it um and uh no i mean i think i think you've really done the subject proud um just as a as a final point uh chris i i, I asked you before we came on air i said we were going to do a quick fire federer round <laughs> okay so Let's hear it. Best match. I mean, that's tough because what does best mean, David? But I'm going to go maybe a surprising one, but I'm going to go his best match, if you will, when he was just irresistible. 2004 U.S. Open final. Six love, seven six, six love over Leighton Hewitt. He was pretty good at the time. And Hewitt, I think I say this in the book, he said too good, mate, and, and he was right. Yeah. Remember it well. Best shot. Cover of the book. Backhand, cross court, dying slice. Um, connoisseur shot. And really the, a great antidote to all the opponents he played who had those extreme grips and kind of a distaste for the net. Obviously, you can pick so many shots with Roger, but that one is the one that people inside the game and Roger himself knows has won in so many matches. Best rivalry. Djokovic. Felt like a rivalry on and off the court both. And to me, at least, it always felt like it had more of an edge than the rivalry with Nadal. And, um, you know, there have been some incredible turnabouts, all the match points saved in different places and some great wins for Roger, including one people tend to forget, which was 2011 French Open semifinal when Novak had won all those matches in a row and was just on an incredible tear. And one of Roger's finest, finest, slightly forgotten matches was one in there. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, best victory? A lot of victories. I'll pick the one I think that mattered most to him in the moment, because he's, he's an in-the-moment kind of person. 2017 Australian Open final. Comes back from a breakdown in the fifth set to beat the guy that, you know, has been his uh, his touchstone, Rafa Nadal. Toughest defeat? That's an interesting one because there have been a lot of tough defeats. And one of the reasons we, I think, as public feel connected to Roger is he's had to go through a lot of hard times in, in the public eye, a lot of really brutal defeats. But I can't imagine there was one that would hurt more than 2019 Wimbledon final. Two match points on his serve against Novak. And literally, he missed a first serve with an open court down the tee on one of those match points by just the smallest of margins in the tape. If it had cleared the net. 
It was his, it was his title. So he was literally a couple centimeters away from his greatest victory at that stage and ended up losing. Hmm. And finally his best season. You know, there are a lot you could pick. I mean, you could go to 2004, 2005, go to back to those years. I'm going to pick 2017, 2017, just because I feel like that was the most unexpectedly great season. And I know it mattered so much to him and meant so much to him. And it felt like gravy in a way. And the pressure was off, at least for the first half of that season. He didn't finish it strongly, but to be able to win the Aussie Open the way he did and then sweep for the hard courts in, in the U.S. and win Wimbledon again, I mean, to me, even if he missed the French, I, I feel like that was that was a special season for him and for all those who followed him. Well, it's just been a special experience to hear about it, really, um, because, you know, this this may well be the end. Do you, do you think it's the end of his competitive playing career, Chris? I mean, I dare say the the way you open the book and the exhibition tour may be something that we see from him. But personally, I think that we've we've probably seen the last of him on a professional court. I think the odds are heavily in, in that direction, David. I mean, obviously, can't rule out him using his his chance here to get better to the motivation of coming back and having that in his mind to help him. And he talked about that very openly when he put a social media post out announcing his surgery. Um, so that could be a factor. And he may want to have that sense of completion by coming back and playing Wimbledon again and or a couple of tournaments, but I think the odds are against that. I think, I think the, the dial of the game is moving away from him and as, as it would and should, you know, at the age he's at with the obstacles he's faced. So I personally would be surprised if we see him back on court in a you know major pro tournament again. Will we see him playing around the world, you know, or maybe even making a Lever Cup appearance as a wild card? I mean, those are all possibilities. Um, exhibition tennis for sure. I know he loves the game. He would miss it so much not being able to play and express that gift that he had. And he has a couple of, uh, I know his sons are interested, his young sons like the game and are interested in playing. And so he may find a way to connect with them on that level too. But whatever the case may be, his main body of work is, I think we can clearly say now, it's it's finished. Indeed, but it has been some body of work. And yeah, I do, I do highly recommend anybody listening to this to to get a copy of The Master by Christopher Clary, our guest here today on the Tennis Podcast. You, you won't regret it. Um, it's, it's available now, and uh, you can get it from all the usual places but um no i mean i i think it's uh i i i get the sense that that it's something that you will always be glad you wrote and and i'm certainly glad i got the chance to read it it's it was a pleasure thank thanks for your time chris as always david that means a lot coming from you and uh, i appreciate i appreciate that no i definitely uh did what i could best i could with the time i had so and it's been a real privilege to be able to watch this era in men's tennis and to uh and to cover it, you know, journalistically, of course, you're not you're not a fan, but it's it's something that uh, has been a professional pleasure, and um, to be able to really have a full view of Roger and a fuller view of this era was uh, really meant a lot to me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Well, that really was a pleasure to talk to Chris Clary. It always is, I, I feel. But in this particular instance, I feel like we've got the very best of him several times over because it's a book it's all of his reporting all of the the great stuff that we we get to read in the new york times several times over uh matt roberts is here now with me matt and um you've read read the book what what did you think of it what what was what was the experience of reading it like for you well i loved it yeah i really did and I'm sure this has come across to listeners in in your chat with Chris there, but I I cannot stress this enough that this is a book about Roger Federer, yes, but more than anything, it's Chris Clary's book about Roger Federer, just just as you've said there, because, you know, like you, I'm a big fan of Chris's writing in the New York Times, and, you know, it's, it's quite lyrical writing at times, but it's always precise and sharp, and I think that really comes through in the book. But mainly it's Chris's book, just because of the time he spent with Roger Federer. And um, he really takes us into those interviews with Federer. Um, you know, he sort of describes the settings of them and you can you can kind of picture yourself there and picture the scene. And he's seen so many moments of Federer's career with his own eyes. And there's this really nice balance of reporting from the time and then also the more up-to-date interviews that he's done specifically for the book. I think he said 82 of them. Just to really contextualise and situate Federer within tennis today. And he's got so many contacts who he speaks to that you just get such a full 
image, I think, of Roger Federer. And, um, you know, more generally, I just like how Chris covers tennis. I think he... I think he appeals to the way we look at tennis. I think there's a line in the book actually quite early on that he says a lot of tennis reporting he feels can get a bit bogged down by statistics and technical aspects. And of course, there's a place for that and that can be great. And Chris weaves that into his writing always, but it's always part of the larger human story with Chris, as as I think he said in your chat. And yeah, I was struck by the same thing you were struck by. Yes, there's a lot of granular detail and anecdotes about Federer's life which I had not heard and I consider myself a Federophile and a, a Federer connoisseur really there's I learned loads about Federer but I also learned a lot about a lot of other people um, you know their perspectives on Federer and Chris's perspective on them as well it's it's a real book about the last 20 years of men's tennis as well as it is about Roger Federer so I think there's there's just so much that you can learn from this book. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that reporting element within a book mm. means a, a lot to me as somebody who I love journalism. I love the way the media works when it's done well. And he said himself, he could have written this book off just his past, off his notes, off his previous experience. But no, he added 82 separate interviews just for this book because he's a reporter, because he wants to find out things. He's got a curious mind. So how best to satisfy that curious mind? Go and talk to people. Go and talk to people who are there, who know, who were right in there all the way through. And we've tried to bring that into our Tennis Relived work, those podcasts, as, as well as all the wonderful research you do we try to get extras. We try to have have new stuff, new ways of looking at the same subject, um, and and I that's that's the great value of this book to me. In in above all else, um, is it is there anything you you found out about Federer that surprised you from this book? There was, yeah. I mean, I think you know you can split Federer's career into many different. Uh, sections I suppose but quite broadly speaking there's before he cracked it and after he cracked it kind of before Wimbledon 2003 and after Wimbledon 2003 and for someone like me that early part of Federer's career I just didn't know it and I didn't observe it I wasn't I I was around but I wasn't you know showing that much interest in tennis I was too young and I think for a lot of people that early part of the career might be the Federer they've forgotten because we just know him now as this great champion. So that was the part of the book which I thought Chris really, really captured. And I was, well, I learned that Federer had a psychologist early on in his career. I don't want to spoil the book, but that is something which I didn't know at all. And there's a fascinating uh, section on how that helped Federer and just hearing from all of his Swiss Davis Cup teammates and his coaches when he was a junior. I just didn't know about that part of Federer's career in such detail. Um, and then the second half of the book is is probably more known to me, but I just loved the way Chris dug into those rivalries with, with Nadal and Djokovic in particular. You know, I think those three are so linked at this point that you can't really write about one without writing about the other two as well. And 
yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but there was just so many insightful observations from Chris about whether Federer was ready for a rival and the effect that those rivals had on him and how they humanized him in a way and how they perhaps even have surpassed him. And then, yeah, this this final chapter, I think, kind of ruminates on Federer's place in the game at the moment while his records are being chased down. So it just feels very, very timely in that sense. Um, and then there's also a big chapter on the business side of things, you know, right towards the end of the book. And again, talking about things I learned, loads of stuff I learned in that about, um, you know, whether Federer was the guy or whether he was going to be one of several guys and there was sort of hesitancy to give him the huge contract straight away and whether he could have earned more from from other agents. He just Chris really digs into that. And that, again, that is something I don't know. We, we think of Federer now with his huge Uniqlo contract, but it wasn't always like that. And um, Chris really digs into why that was the case. Yeah, no, absolutely fascinating, all of it. It does make me think, I, I'd like to read more books from Chris Clary mm. on some of these great champions. I'd love to, given how fascinated he is journalistically by Novak Djokovic, I'd love to have him properly speak to everybody that he could and do another one, you know. There's there are others. I mean, Serena Williams. Imagine imagine the job he could do with some of these. Yeah, and he, and he's got the Spanish for Nadal. I mean, no pressure, Chris, but we are. Uh... <laughs> and yeah, and and I should say just for pod listeners, one, you know, there's so many reasons to read this book, but one in particular is that uh, David gets described as a young Briton, and Dan Evans gets described as a British veteran, and I found that very. Very amusing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I haven't been described as young anything for a, a good 20 years. <laughs> uh, no, it was great fun. Great fun to read it. Um, heartily recommend you getting a copy yourselves if uh, if you have any interest. Um, we'll put our, put the link to, to it uh, in our show notes so that you can... Um, you can access it easily, but I mean, obviously, it's in all the major bookshops. Um, it's the master. It's Roger Federer's biography written through the eyes and experiences of Chris DeVaclary from the New York Times. And uh, yeah, great to have him on the show. We'll be back again with another tennis podcast tomorrow um, as we record right now on Tuesday lunchtime here in the UK. It's Tennis Relived Time, US Open Relived, and the story of Marat Safin the Russian who won the US Open in the year 2000. Can't wait to bring that to you. We've got another one later this week with the story of Roberta Vinci against Serena Williams the year that Serena was going for the calendar Grand Slam back in 2015. And uh, we'll be telling that story as well. Then it's daily editions, of course, during the US Open. Uh, We'll have a preview of the US Open also. Can't wait to bring it all to you. So thanks very much for your company. Uh, And Matt, Catherine and myself will be back with you very soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. 
Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.